From the Newswire, this is Market Radio, the voice of the markets in Canada and the U.S. I'm Pat Beechner. On this edition, a review and re-examination of Canada's anti-spam laws, the Castle Laws. What's changed? What's new? What will keep honest email citizens out of hot water? And what sort of hammer comes down if you don't know the rules and you don't pay attention? Joining me is David Elder, a senior telecommunications lawyer for Steichman Elliott. David, welcome. You know, the laws came down five years ago, and uh, they were, at least in design, supposed to slow down the volume amount of spam. And I look at my inbox, and, and quite frankly, some days it seems worse than ever. Well, and in, and in fact, it, it, it may continue to seem that way. Whether the law has worked or not is a matter of where you stand and what you consider to be success. Parliamentary committee sort of reviewed the law three years after it was introduced and put out a report at the end of 2017. And in that report, and as part of that process, the government adduced a number of statistics, and, and one of them was they claimed that spam in Canada had been reduced overall by one-third. A lot of people disputed whether that was a result of the law or whether that had more to do with better uh, anti-spam technologies and, and filters and, and that sort of thing. But that was an overall spam figure. And I think in my estimation, I don't think the act has been successful. It was supposed to be directed at the most damaging and deceptive types of spam. And in fact, it's had relatively little effect on that, those kind of hardcore spammers. And instead, it's had a deleterious effect on legitimate Canadian businesses. There was a survey that was done leading up to that parliamentary review by the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, and they found actually that as a result of, of Castle, 42% of businesses had decreased their reliance on electronic marketing, and 7% had stopped doing electronic marketing altogether. So uh, it's really had a a very significant impact, uh, again, I think, on legitimate businesses and by all accounts and looking at my own inbox, I continue to get really fraudulent spam and phishing scams and, and all the type of stuff that we should really be worried about. David, the reason I ask that is a lot of the folks that listen to this show are in the investor relations business and obviously not sending out anything nefarious, uh, viruses or phishing or anything of that nature. But in a lot of cases, they do go to trade shows, that sort of thing, put out a draw box, people put their cards in and from there, they derive email addresses that they send information on the clients they represent to those folks. Is that spam? Well, you know, the default under the law is you you need express prior consent in order to send what marketing or promotional message, which the law calls a commercial electronic message. There are some exceptions and exemptions available. There are more available if you're in the B2B space as opposed to the, the B2C space. But one of them would be if, you know, people are looking to do prospecting, for example, um, a conspicuous publication, an address uh, gives you sort of uh, implied consent under the law. It's more of a deemed consent, really. You know, if uh, a company that you might think would, would, would want to do business with you and on their website, they list an email address, you know, for their CEO or their director of uh, marketing or whoever, it, that you have implied consent to send that person a commercial electronic message, provided they haven't said on the, on the site, you know, don't send me one. And provided that the message that you send is relevant to that person's 
sort of business role, function, or duties. That's one of the exceptions that is relevant for businesses. There's also one, an exemption for, or an exception rather, for what we call sort of direct disclosure. So if somebody gives you their business card and it has their email address on it, or if they send you an email message, or if they write you a letter, in any of those scenarios, they've directly disclosed their email address to you, and you would have implied consent to send them a commercial electronic message again, assuming the message is relevant to their business role, function, or duties, and assuming that they haven't otherwise said, don't send me commercial electronic messages. David, what is the situation where email is sent and in particular targeted again and again where it's... uh questionable whether it's warranted that the uh, recipient even wants to get them. And and what's the case if it's from outside Canada, i.e. the United States? Well, that, then that's, that's actionable in both uh, the U.S. And in, and in Canada. If you don't uh, honor an unsubscribed request, that's a violation of the law. In Canada, it's, uh, you have to give effect to an unsubscribed request within, within 10 business days. David, most of the listeners that we have, as said, are trying to abide by the law and uh, they're sending emails and not trying to send anything nefarious, malware, phishing, that sort of thing, just strictly emails. But for those that don't heed the warning, what can happen when the hammer comes down? Well, the CRTC is is the enforcement body, right, is largely complaints driven. And so, you know, what can happen is if uh, a company is, is acting in a way that they're not compliant with Castle, whether it's because they're not securing the appropriate consent or they're not unsubscribing people uh, who have asked to be unsubscribed, that's a, that's a big cause of the complaint. Those people can complain to the CRTC through the, the Spam Reporting Center, which is sort of a government-run site that takes spam complaints. And the CRTC looks through all those complaints and, you know, and decides which ones to investigate. Uh, and if they do investigate and discover noncompliance, they have a, a range of enforcement powers, in, including the power to impose what they call administrative monetary penalties, which are, are fines by any other name. And theoretically, they, they can impose penalties of up to $10 million per violation. We haven't seen any quite that high, and uh, the lowest of the fines that we've seen, I think, is $10,000, and the largest is $1.1 million. David, is there any leeway with the regulators in the sense that uh, they'll give a grace period or a warning, maybe if there's a, a nothing that's an egregious oversight, or do they come down with the fines each time? My understanding is they're starting, they're, they're saying that they're doing more of that. They have a broader toolkit than just uh, issuing fines. Although my experience initially uh, with the CRTC, you know, right out of the gate was that they weren't using those other tools and they were just, you know, wielding the fine stick. Um, they, they can also issue citations, which are kind of official warnings. More informally, they can issue warning letters. Even if they do get into investigations, they try to sort of settle them. So an organization that is faced with an investigation and findings of noncompliance can enter into an undertaking with the CRTC, whereby, you know, they'll often will agree to, to pay a fine. Usually the fine is lower than what would be imposed if, if they didn't agree and will agree to, you know, put in place a compliance program and, and those sorts of things. In deciding what sort of condition and the size of the fine, the CRTC will look at, you know, all the relevant factors. They'll look at the size of the company and, uh, you know, the scope of the violations 
and whether the the company was negligent, you know, in not meeting its responsibilities, that sort of thing. There is theoretically a due diligence defense. So if a company has, you know, a robust compliance program in place and notwithstanding all their best efforts, you know, a rogue employee sends out some messages that are contrary to the company's policy. Theoretically, it's open to the CRTC to find that, you know, that they shouldn't be penalized for that. But I haven't seen a case like that. David, interesting. Very, very, very interesting. Listen, for a lot of folks involved in our industry, the rules, regulations, again, as they say, are somewhat opaque, and you are certainly someone who can give clearance and guidance. For those that want more information, how do folks get a hold of you? Where do folks go? Well, uh, you can go to um, www.steikman.com. Again, through the Knowledge Hub, we have a, a Castle Spotlight page full of information. You can find me or, or any of our lawyers uh, by doing a search for practice areas. And if you put in Castle, a few of us will pop up. As I mentioned, there's also information available, for example, at fightspam.ca, uh, which is a government site. David Elder is a senior telecommunications lawyer for Steichman Elliott. All appropriate links are available on screen. David, thanks for this. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay,